Well, good morning, Mission View. It's always good to see you first of the year, right out of the gate, and uh, uh, appreciate the opportunity to always to come down and be able to share God's Word. As a matter of fact, uh, Friday night, uh, my wife said, are you ready for Sunday? And I said, honey, I was born ready. And uh, no, I didn't really say that. Um, uh, I said, yeah. I said, I always look forward to coming down to Mission View and being able to open up God's Word. Thank you for uh, you being here and uh, make this a whole year commitment of just saying, you know what, unless we're out of town or we're sick, we're going to be here because uh, there are some incredible things going on in this ministry. Amen? And so uh, just make sure that you're, you're a part of that. So, well, let me take you all the way back to uh, the 1950s. Some of you remember, some of you were like, I wasn't there, neither was I, thank the Lord. And so, uh, uh, so in the early 1950s, there was a product that was invented uh, that really became an incredible household item worldwide. Uh, you have used it, you've at least seen it in your life, and that is the household item of Velcro. How many of you have seen or have used Velcro in your life? Uh, all of us will probably know what Velcro is, but maybe you don't know the history behind Velcro. So in the early 1950s, there was a guy named George Meestrel. George Meestrel was walking his dog one day out in the woods. Uh, he came back with his dog, and he was sitting down to take off his shoes. And he noticed all of those um, prickly, seed-like, uh, sticky-type seedlings that were on the bottom of his pant leg. And he started to pull them off, and he began to think, why are these so attached to my pant leg? And so he pulled one of them off and grabbed a microscope, like you'd have one nearby, and uh, uh, grabbed a microscope, and he noticed that there were hundreds upon hundreds of, of hooks attached to the end of these burrs, of these seedlings. Then he began to examine his pant leg, and he saw that the fabric the material of his pant leg was filled with hundreds of loops that made up the material of his pants. And he thought, huh, I'm going to create a two-fastened item, uh, hooks on one side, loops on the other, and I'm going to fit them together, and he called it Velcro. Well, over the course of a year or two, George Meestrel was selling over 60 million yards of Velcro. It has now become a multi-million dollar product, and I wish I would have thought of that. And so, um, as I was thinking about this, uh, the one thing about Velcro is, the more you push it together, uh, the more strength you have, the harder it is to pull it apart. And when I heard the story about Velcro, I thought, that's the church. That's the church. The church is made up of, of hooks and loops uh, joined together, pushed together even in times of adversity and uncertainty. And the harder you are pushed together, the more you are pushed together, the harder it is to be torn apart. And the stronger we become in the process. That is certainly the case in Acts chapter 7 and in Acts chapter 8 this morning. 
Now, I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to, if you have them or on your phone or whatever, to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verse 51 uh, to the end of the chapter and then a little bit into chapter 8. But I want to set the table for you, not just for this morning, but for the next number of weeks. We have just finished um, part of our series called Overcome, the Making of a Leader. We have been looking at the Apostle Peter. Well, we are flipping that now. It is still the same series, but we're looking at another individual in Scripture, the making of a leader, who is Saul, who will eventually become who? Paul. And so we are going to be taking a look at Paul's life. I want to set the table for you this morning and in the weeks to come by introducing to you this morning two individuals. One of them is Stephen. Stephen is in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7. Stephen was the first martyr of the early Christian church. We are also going to see this morning this individual named Saul, who eventually becomes Paul. One, Stephen is filled with the Spirit. Paul, or Saul at this time, is filled with hatred. So let's take a look at first Stephen and this man that was filled with the Spirit of God. If you went back and you read Acts chapter 6, you would see that in the early church, there was some kind of problem that the widows in the church felt neglected. They felt like nobody was taking care of them. So they appointed seven men to take care of the widows of the early church. Seven predominant men. Stephen was one of those men. But we're told that he wasn't just predominant in the area of taking care of widows, but he was a prominent person in boldly proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that as you look at chapter 6 into chapter 7. That he was a person that boldly proclaimed the gospel with the company signs and wonders. But it led to a resistance. Because as Stephen is sharing the gospel boldly, fervently, earnestly. There are people that did not want him sharing that. And it was this council, this uh, Sanhedrin, these high priests. And so uh, he was sharing about Christ. He was sharing about the cross. He was sharing about the resurrection. He was sharing about so many things about Jesus in his life. And they did not like hearing that because they felt that he was sharing something that opposed the law of Moses. Well, Stephen was basically saying Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But these leaders, they did not like to hear what he had to say. Because he spoke about Christ and his resurrection and the resurrection of the dead. And those that were a part of this law, this council, held very closely to the law of Moses and did not want to hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So they began to have some false testimony or false witnesses bearing false uh, witness against Stephen. They pull Stephen in. Are you with me? They pull Stephen in and they seize him. They drag him before this council of uh, right around 70. And they said, are these things true? And Stephen has an opportunity to defend the gospel. And what Stephen does is he goes all the way back for them and he goes all the way back into the Old Testament and he talks about how faithful God was to Abraham and the other patriarchs. All of chapter 7 talks about this. About how faithful God was to the patriarchs. And how, how faithful God was in the promises of God to Joseph. 
And then he talks about how God chose to guide and direct Moses and the Israelites and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then he talks about how God has shown his favor on David and Solomon. And then he turns it and he looks at them and he says, and your forefathers, those that went before you, they listened to what the prophets had to say and they turned their backs on the prophets. He said, as a matter of fact, many of your forefathers persecuted and put to death the prophets. And then we come to verse 51. And he looks right at him and he says these words. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your forefathers did. And now you do too. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Right at them. He looks right at them and calls them, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. Now, if I was sitting there and I had heard this, I would think, you know, I was with you. I was really with you. I was listening to this. I was in agreement to this. Right up to the point where you called me stiff-necked. Right up to the point where you called me uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uh, that's not going to win a lot of friends and influence people. Uh, when he says that, you're not going to get a lot of high fives after the service. And someone say, man, thank you so much for calling me stiff-necked. I needed to hear that. You're not going to hear that. He's going to get a lot of hate mail. But why does he say you are stiff-necked? Why, why does Stephen, who is filled with the Spirit of God and proclaiming boldly the gospel, why does he call them stiff-necked? Well, it implies that they were stubborn. They did not want to turn. Their hearts had grown cold and hard, and they did not want to embrace the claims of Jesus Christ. So they turned their backs on Jesus, the Messiah, who had been spoken of long, long ago in the Old Testament scriptures, of one who would come and redeem the people of Israel. And they turned their back on the living God, and like their forefathers, who killed those who foretold of the coming of the righteous one, they themselves had become betrayers. They themselves had become murderers. Wow. I want to say something to you this morning as a side note. So I'll, I'll stand over here since it's a side note. Don't become stiff-necked. Don't become stubborn. In the ways of God, in the word of God. You have an incredible privilege to be able to come in here every single Sunday and hear the word of God. You have the incredible privilege every day of opening up the Word of God and reading the Word of God and influencing your children and grandchildren with the Word of God. Don't become stiff-necked. Don't get to the point where you are like, I don't care what God's Word says. I'm going to do it my way. Anybody ever do that? Confession here at Mission View? Okay, two of you. The rest of you are liars. We've all done that. We've all done that. We've all said, I'm going to kind of do things my way. I want to do it my way. Let me give you an example. So I'm at Panera, where all true ministry occurs. And uh, so I'm at Panera. This was years ago. 
and I'm sitting there, and a couple wants to meet with me because they are engaged, and they want to get married. So who do they call the pastor? And so they invite me to Panera. We're sitting at Panera, and I'm asking questions. As I'm asking questions, I'm kind of getting some hints that they're living together. And they said, yes, we just bought a house, and we're so excited, and we're decorating it, and we're in the house together. And I said, so you're living together? And they said, yes. And I said, well, let me give you the first counsel for premarital counseling. If you want your marriage to start out right on the right foot, for this time, split up. Have her go someplace, or you go someplace, but make sure that you're honoring the Lord before you get married, and then you'll honor the Lord when you are married. And the guy looked at me as if I had just had a shoe in my mouth. He was like, what? I said, yeah. I said, if you want to do things God's way, if you really want to hold to God's word, uh, honor him by, by starting your life and your marriage on the right foot. And he goes, you're kidding me. We just bought a house. I said, I know. I said, I know you bought a house. But I said, it's okay. God will honor that. And then I found out that he had been married before and he wasn't actually divorced yet. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I stood there. Well, I didn't stand there. I was sat there. And I looked at him and I said, I, I'm sorry. But I can't, in, in good faith and good conscience, according to the word of God, I can't. I can't do your wedding. To which he stood up and he goes, what? And I remember his hands were about, what? And I thought he's going to fly away. I know it. <laughs> what? I said, I will not do your wedding. And he said, Bible or no Bible, I'm at peace with my decision. And I said, that's not the peace of God. That's your flesh talking. To which he said, I can't repeat it. <laughs> what he said, and he called me, okay? And he told me someplace I should go. But I'm destined for heaven, okay? <laughs> and they stormed out. There is something wrong when we become stiff-necked. We have such a privilege to honor God. Stephen honored the Lord in how he lived and what he did and, and what he spoke. He honored the Lord. And whenever you honor the Lord, you will come up against those who are stiff-necked. Amen? You will find those who will not agree with you and they won't agree with the word of God and they're going to do things their way. And I'm at peace. I don't need God in my life. That is what was occurring here. They had become stiff-necked towards the way of God. They had become stubborn. Their hearts had become hard. Mission view, make sure this year your heart stays soft. That you are open and available for God and his leading in your life. That is the best place you could ever be. Well, we see that these religious leaders in verse 54, they are filled with hatred. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth in defiance at him. It would be uh, like someone shaking their fist at you in, in rage and in anger. And yet, we're told that Stephen is filled with the Spirit in verses 55 and 56. Let's take a look at this for a second. 
But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I want to make three quick observations regarding verses 55 and 56. The first observation is this. Stephen looks up to the Son of God, not back at the cross. He looks up at the Son of God, not back on the cross. The, the redemptive work of the cross is finished. It's complete. Jesus has done it. We do not crucify Jesus again and again on the cross. We look up to him, and the redemptive work of the cross is finished. So we see Stephen looking up. Jesus is preparing even now his eminent return to bring us home. We look back on the cross in remembrance. We just did that a few minutes ago. We look at his sacrifice. We look at what he has surrendered. We look at how he, is, he, he went to the cross and paid for our sin. We do this in remembrance of who? Him. We, we remember the cross. But we don't focus so much on it that it keeps us from looking to him today because he is resurrected. We look up to Jesus in full assurance that his work is complete. The second observation is Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. Now you've heard that before, that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. It signifies that Jesus holds a position and a place of honor. Uh, but it also verifies that the Father has given Jesus all authority on heaven and on earth to rule over all, including his enemies. And also verifies that Jesus has conquered death. But this third one, you probably just blew by it. And that is this. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Uh, this is the only time in Scripture that we see Jesus standing for one of his faithful servants. We often see references where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, it refers to the work that his redemption, his, the work that he's done on the cross is finished. That he is sitting down and is done. Well, why is Jesus standing? Well, there may be two reasons. One, that it is implying that Jesus rises to welcome the very first martyr of the, of the early church, Stephen. That it would be as if you are so moved by something that you stand and you applaud or you give an ovation. That Jesus stands up in great tribute for Stephen who would be that first martyr. That's a possibility. It also could be that Jesus stands because he is the judge over all. And he will judge those individuals who are executing Stephen. And so he stands as our judge. What we see in verse 54 is there is no time for an altar call here. Because the council is livid. They are shouting. They've got their hands over their ears like your kids do sometimes. And I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Enough. And they seize him. And they drag him out of the city. Scholars said they threw him in some form of pit so that he couldn't run away. And the council, this religious council, has taken off their outer garments, have given them to an individual that we'll look at in a moment named Saul. And they stand there and they pick up stones and they stone Stephen 
until he dies. I want you to notice something as they are stoning Stephen at, at this place outside of the city. I want you to see Stephen's disposition in verses 59 and 60. He is not filled with rage. He is not fearful. He is not bitter. He is not indignant. He is filled with the Spirit. It says in verse 59 and 60, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Bring it on, you losers. Does, does your Bible say that? And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, You're a bunch of losers, you sissies. No. It says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Interesting enough, I wonder if the high priests and the Sanhedrin council as they stood there remembered the moment when Jesus said some of those very same words. When Jesus looked to his father when he was praying and said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And here Stephen is, full of the spirit of God, is basically saying the same thing. Friends, when you are being persecuted, and again, we've talked about this in the weeks past, uh, that when someone makes fun of you at work or somebody says, oh, you're a holy roller or whatever they label you, we tend to go, oh, I'm being persecuted. The persecution here is a physical persecution that's going on. But when we are being persecuted for our faith, what are we focused on? Are we focused on the persecutor? Or are we focus on the one who will one day take care of the persecutor? Our Lord, our judge, the one who will take care of all of that. Stephen's death may have been the end of his earthly life, but it was the beginning of the early church. It was through this time that the early church began to have a ripple effect in Jerusalem and beyond that would affect lives directly and indirectly as they were advancing the gospel. Stephen, go back and do a character study on Stephen. And you will be encouraged and challenged to say, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I walking with the Lord? Am I, is my heart open and available and soft for God's word in my life? Or have I become like that counsel? Have I become like those high priests that are so hardened towards the ways of God, they don't see Jesus unless, even if he was right in front of them. That is Stephen, a man who is filled with the Spirit. The second person that we see, and we're going to spend some time on in, in the next number of weeks, is Saul, who will eventually become Paul. Saul of Tarsus. Well, Tarsus is now, does anyone know, modern day what? Turkey. Modern day Turkey. And so we see a glimpse of Saul, right? This is the very first account that we see of Saul, who would eventually become Paul, who wrote many of the epistles, prison epistles, pastoral epistles, highly influential in why the church is where it is today. And yet we see him in his early days, just like we saw Peter. 
And he didn't have it all together. He thought he had it all together, but he didn't have it all together. And so we see uh, verse uh, uh, 58 of chapter 7. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the council was ready to stone Stephen. And here is uh, Saul handling the, the, the garments. They're, they're, they're setting them right by him. This young man. There's a reason why he is uh, it's the phrase young man. First impressions are often lasting impressions, aren't they? Uh, you will meet somebody for the first time. We all have an impression about them. Man, they had a great smile. Man, I love their eyes. That was a great sweater that he or she was wearing. First impressions. Man, I met him. He's a jerk. He's a real jerk. I, 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 I didn't care for him at all. He was arrogant. He was proud. Um, yeah, how many of you have had first impressions of somebody? Just raise your hand. Yeah, we, we all do. Here's a first impression of Saul. That we see him, he is standing there, he is giving approval of this execution of Stephen. He stands as a supervisor of this execution. He is a member of the Sanhedrin at the time, and he's in full approval of Stephen's death. He is not a kid. Even though it says he is a young man, he is not a kid. Uh, scholars say that he is somewhere between 21 and 28 years old. Most people would say he's closer to 28 he is giving full approval of what is going on. He is a man in his prime. Remember when you were in your prime? How many of you can even hardly raise your hand? You remember when you were in your prime? You know, remember high school or college? And you're like, man, I am something. I am something. He is in his prime. And in our prime sometimes comes pride, doesn't it? Man, I thought I had it together. And man, I was God's gift to every woman. And you know, all these things in our mind. We're in our prime. But when we look back later on and we've grown in wisdom, we've got a little bit of wisdom under our back. We look back and go, man, I was so cocky. I thought I knew everything. I, I, I oh, it was terrible. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. The execution of Stephen snowballed so much that it impacted the believers in Jerusalem and caused them to scatter these followers of Christ. And if that's not bad enough, it tells us that Saul, look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 8, but Saul was ravaging or seeking to destroy the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Here's what I find sad. In verse 2, we see devoted men mourning and bearing Stephen while Saul is crashing into homes, dragging out people, taking them to prison because they say that they are a part of the way. They are followers of Jesus. First impressions that we look at Saul, we think, what a jerk. I can't believe he would do that. Who would do that? Someone who hated at that time Christianity. Somebody who saw that Christianity uh, was an offense to him being a teacher of the law, uh, being all these things religious, being a part of this, this council. It went against everything that he believed in and that God will use anything 
or anyone to draw us back to himself. I want to speak about that for a moment. God will use anything or anyone to draw us back to himself. He will use a relationship. He will use a situation. He will use a time of heartache. He will use a work situation. He will use something that happens in your family to your daughter or your son. He will use those times to draw you back to him. And when those times come, don't shake your fist at him. I've done it. You probably have done it too. I've had those times in the car where I've laid into the Lord and it's just been him and I and I never win. Don't find yourself shaking your fist at him. God will use anything or anyone, even a Saul, to draw people closer to him. What happens? The church is doing so well in Jerusalem. They're growing. They're learning. They're vibrant. And then all of a sudden, here comes Saul. Knocking down doors, bringing people into the prison, uh, executing people that are followers of the way, and you would think that the church would go, <gasps> no, and be fearful. And they scatter. But God uses that scattering to honor and glorify his name in a way that is incredible. I want you to see something here. Uh, Acts 26, 9 to 11. I think we have it here. Here is a little taste of what Paul will become. You know how I just said that sometimes we'll look back on our former life and we'll go, oh man, where was I in all of that? That was a bad time in my life. We see that. We see that in Acts 26 here where Paul looks back on his former life and he says this. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to, jail, uh, sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them. And when they were condemned to death, many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Have you ever looked back at what your life used to be? Don't dwell on it. God's got a new thing going on in your life. But Paul took a moment in Acts 6 and said, that's where I used to be. But this is where I am now. And we'll get there. But right now, we're still in his former life, the ugliness of what his sin has done and how it is trying to wreck the church of Jesus Christ. The interesting thing is that what, what may appear to be a tragedy really becomes a triumph for the church because it leads the church to scatter uh, and do the work of evangelism that will go all over the world. And so I don't want you to miss this verse. Look at Acts 8.4. That is a key verse in Acts 8.4. Acts 8.4 says this. Now those who were uh, scattered went about preaching the word. If you had an NIV 1984 uh, translation, it would say, and they went out preaching everywhere they went. They preached and proclaimed the word everywhere they went. Author Vincent Bonnet said, the blood of the martyrdom of Stephen became the seed for the church to scatter. The church is scattered beyond Jerusalem. 
Interesting enough, we go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Acts where it says, you will be my witnesses in, tell me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and one other place, the uttermost parts of the world. I don't know where that is. I've seen it, but I've never been there. The uttermost parts of the world. And somewhere, God had in mind Mission View Church. Somewhere God had in mind North Canton. I don't know if that's a Jerusalem, a Judea, a Samaria, or the uttermost parts of the world. But God had you in mind. Because we are directly or indirectly a part of that seed scattering. That somewhere along the line came our way. And we, we received the Lord. We took that seed and we received Jesus Christ into our life, and we not only received it, but now we have the responsibility of sharing it. So you and I are a part of that persecution. You and I are a part of that scattering. This passage, this event, the gospel was scattered all over the world, and eventually it makes its way to you and I. Aren't you thankful for that today? Aren't you thankful that they went through a time of persecution in the early church so that we, Mission View Church, could respond to that and could go and share that? You, you've heard the saying that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. Have you heard that? Because you, you, when you fail to share the good news, eventually it becomes old news and then eventually it becomes no news. People will not come to Christ necessarily through a preacher. But they will come to Christ through someone like you. Someone who's just ordinary, sharing an extraordinary story. Someone who is just working 40, 50, 60 hours a week trying to provide for their family. Someone who's in school and trying to do the best they can. Someone who's a mom, maybe she's a single mom, she's got a child, but she's striving to live for the Lord and they see something different in your life and they ask and you tell them. They probably won't come to know Christ because of a preacher, but they'll come to know Christ because of how you live your life out every single day. Some of you I know, Randy works at a bank. Steve is a pastor. Brian, I can't remember what you do, but I'm sure it's worth something, okay? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, all of you work someplace or around somewhere. We don't realize that just as the scattering occurred in Jerusalem that caused the word to go out worldwide, we're a part of that. And so when we have that opportunity, take that opportunity. So I was a youth pastor for 10 and a half years. And there came a point where I'm like, I'm done, okay? Uh, but one of the things that I always remember sharing with our teenagers was this phrase, and you'll see it. If not you, then who? If not here, then where? If not now, then when? Boy, if we could keep that in our mind for this year, hey, if not you, then who's gonna share? If not here, then where? God is calling me to do some work overseas, but he's also wanting me to make sure I am sharing my faith here just as I'm planning on doing over there. If not you, then who? 
If not here, then where? If not now, then when? I'll get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> Don't pressure me. I'll get to it. How often have we said that? Uh, I know I need to share. I'm going to pray. You may not want to hear this. I'm going to pray that God, over this next year, would bring five people into your life that you could share Christ with. Five. I was just challenged with this not too long ago. Five people that we can say, you know what? We've been friends for 20 years. I have never shared with you the relationship that I have with Christ. That he would give you the love and he would give you the boldness and he would give you the words to be able to share. If not you, then who? If not here, then where? If not now, then when? Just as God the Father just as Jesus the Son, just as the Spirit of God looked down upon Stephen when he was being martyred, Jesus does the same thing today. He looks down on us seeking that we would walk with him, not become stiff-necked, that we would honor him and his word, seeking to guide your life and fulfill your life with purpose. So I thought it would be interesting if we just ended today by showing you a picture. You'll see it up here. I also brought it in with me. So when I was a youth pastor, I had received this. And the person that gave it to me, I don't even remember who gave it to me. But they gave it to me and they said, Craig, we want you to have this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's nice. And so it says, uh, uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who uh, doesn't sit in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, he meditates upon the word of God day and night. And they're like, Craig, you're like the shepherd and everything. Oh, okay, you know. And I'm like, thank you. And, and I don't, I, I never hung it up. Uh, to be honest, I just kind of set it someplace down in our basement. And about two years after the person gave me this, I looked at it one day and I went, oh my. I never saw Jesus in this picture before. I had always just seen this man. But how many of you with the raise of your hand see Jesus in this picture looking down? Some of you are like, what? You don't see it? All right, let me help you. Because once you see it, you'll always see it. Here is Jesus' beard. Here is the bottom of his nose. And here are his eyes and his forehead. And he is looking down. How many of you see it now? How many of you are still like, I don't get it. I don't get it. And you need Jesus then, okay, if you don't get it, okay? Because once you see it, you always see it, okay? I thought, how fitting as we talk about 2018. How fitting that we would be like Stephen. How fitting that one day we would be like Paul. But more importantly, how we would be like Jesus. And how Jesus is looking down on all of us and wants us to honor and live for him. As long as you have a pulse, you have a purpose. Every single one of you in here this morning has a pulse. At least I hope you do. But not everyone knows what their purpose is. God desires to give you a purpose that will outlive you. And you're not doing it alone. He's looking down on you. Giving you guidance. Because that's who he is. And I believe this year he is looking down on Mission View and wanting to show favor and wanting to see you grow in your faith that you might be more like him each and every day. Let me pray for us.
Lord, do what you need to do to draw us to you. And Lord, you know this morning our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. And we pray this morning that maybe we have gotten away from you, that we have found ourselves shrinking back, and yet you call us to yourself. You have scattered the early church. The seeds of that early church has come our way. And Lord, if we have responded and received that, we also have a responsibility to share that with others. That we would not become people that are stubborn, that are stiff-necked, but people that are open to the incredible word of God, that we would walk with you and that we'd be mindful that you watch each and every step we make for your honor and for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.